Hello, everyone, and welcome to Call Your Hits, a Stormriders Airsoft podcast. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today, we've got John in the studio, and he's going to be talking to us about a very specific piece of history called the Denison Smock. And before I get into the discussion with John about what exactly is a Denison Smock and you know why is it important and all this kind of stuff, I want to talk a little bit just briefly about a question that we sometimes get asked, which is, how do I turn Airsoft into a career? How do I make money from Airsoft? How do I incorporate Airsoft into my professional life? And what we're going to be talking about today is a really good example of one of the ways that people who play Airsoft can use what they discover while playing Airsoft to support them in their, you know, academics or in their professional life. And, you know, if you're looking to play, uh, if you're looking to turn Airsoft into a profession by playing Airsoft, you know, you, you can be a content creator, but unless you're a very big content creator, like some of the biggest guys like Jet Desert Fox or Novrich or whatever, you're unlikely to be able to make a career playing Airsoft. Um, but it's possible, but it's pretty unlikely. But there's all kinds of other things about Airsoft that you can use to help you make a living. And we've talked about it a little bit in the past. We've talked about how uh, you learn about leadership, for example, in Airsoft, and you can use that to, uh, you know, further your career if you, you know, are a manager or something like that. Or you can learn about communication and education, right? So if you want to become a teacher, you can use Airsoft as a way to learn how to teach people and all this kind of stuff. And so the discussion today with John is a really good example of how something that John discovered and learned about while playing Airsoft ended up being able to support him in his professional field. So Without further ado, and without any more introduction, let's get into it. So, the Denison Smock. Um, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about what exactly that is? Because I would assume that most people who are listening have probably never heard of what a Denison Smock actually is. Yeah, and for those that have heard about the Denison Smock, I should probably give like some of my credentials to be speaking on the matter. Because... If, they, if there's anyone that has any inclination about the smock, they probably know some things. And they probably heard a lot of theories and stuff about it. Uh, but I've been researching the smock for about five years. I just recently purchased my first hand-painted one size 8 mint condition CWS manufacturer. But the Denison smock is a specific bit of kit that was in, introduced in 1942 uh, to dress the airborne army that, of Great Britain. So... This is the very first inclination of the British Airborne Army, or the Paras, as they're known today. So the lineage dates back to 1940, 1941, 1940. Well, 1940. Uh, I think June 22nd or something, that Churchill gives a speech and introduces the Airborne Fighting Forces like a, like a documented thing. And it's treated more seriously after that, like that order is passed. And it finally gets introduced. So the Denison smock was not the first item made for the airborne. They copied the Fallschirmjäger, which is the German, um, the German paratroopers, and they copied their basically their entire look for better part of a year. And one of the key bits was the airborne Stefan smock, known as the bone sack, uh, that the Germans had. The British did basically a one-for-one -one copy. And after that was phased out, they introduced the Denison in August of 1942. So 
ju- just to get a little bit even more basic than that, because I don't think that it's a term that's in super common uh, practice, especially I would say North America even less. So sure. what exactly is a smock? Yeah, smock is like, if you think of like a painter smock, it's usually like a pullover type garment that's kind of baggy um, and usually pretty plain. It's just like, I mean, you can get jackets that are smocks. And basically, it's an anorak. Okay. Uh, so it's just like the smock, the term smock is kind of like a loosely defined thing. It can take different roles if needed. But in this context, it's a pullover, uh, camouflage, either done by hand or done by by screens um, to, one, provide warmth, two, to provide a distinctive look for the paratroopers that denotes them as something more elite than the regular British line infantry. Um, mm-hmm. And three, it's a, uh, it's kind of like an iconic piece of kit now. It's, it's, uh, it's seeing continued use even to this day, like with the British MTP patterns of the latest update of the Denison and MTP. Prior to that, it was CS95 DPM. And then it was all the other prior iterations of DPM. So this is a garment that was introduced, like you said, like in 1942, and but is still in current use today. And obviously right. not in its original form, but well, okay, cool. Yeah, honestly, it's it it harkens quite it harkens true to what the original smock is, and what it kind of like the, the staple features like are the same. Just they have some modern embellishments, like the pockets are a bit baggier. Um, it's a full zip smock, so that's an interesting thing because i i said a denison is usually a smock and a smock is a pullover item but not necessarily the case with the denison i think because of its lineage being like a pullover garment like it kind of has that characteristic built that character trait built into the smock even though it isn't a pullover now it's a full zip jacket right it's, it's still identified as a smock between like those issued it and those who collect it and those who research it. Right. So how did, like, I remember like when you started playing airsoft, you were, you know, doing, I would, uh, you're not doing a world war two impression, but you were dressed up in world war two stuff, let's call it. Yeah. How did you come to discover, I guess, the Denison smock? Hmm, That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I've known about the Denison for a while, but I didn't pay much attention. Like my introduction was probably the same way a lot of North American folks are introduced to it. And that's through film. And mm-hmm. what is the best picture for depicting the Denison smock on a wide scale? But a- Oh, uh, I was gonna, just going to guess. Oh, no, 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 no. no. What, what do you think it is? I think it's a bridge too far. Yeah, you're right on, yeah. baby. Um, so seeing it there, like you can't help but be captivated. Like the British paratroopers of the Second World War look cool. Like that's the mm-hmm. only way to describe their appearance. They looked so sick. Um, so you know, I was interested in it back then, but I just kind of forgot about it because I was focused on whatever it was I was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a friend Nigel um, who invited me um, to these two Facebook pages called. Uh, Denison's and derivatives, Denison smocks and derivatives, windproofs, no, Denison's windproofs and derivatives. And then there's a, another one that uh, it's like airborne collectors. And another one is like, basically there's two dedicated Facebook groups with about 4,000 members, a lot of the same. Um, 
a lot of the same members in both groups, <clears throat> but it's all focused on British camouflage, specifically denizens, and to a lesser extent, windproofs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand this is a lot of like things that probably you don't know about, but hopefully by me mentioning their existence to you, you can maybe just do a little bit of preliminary research on the subject and find out actually how sick these actually look. Right. And as we talked, I'll probably on the YouTube video, I'll also put some pictures up of what sure. you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so people who are looking at it on YouTube at least can get a bit of a sense sure. uh, of what it might look like. And we're going to be doing a partner video with this podcast later on down the line about my smocks and just doing a bit more history of the, the garment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was through that Facebook group that I was like, oh man, there's a lot to these smocks that I don't know about. And they're pretty interesting. I think I, like upon looking at it and understanding what it was, I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, I need to get one. But at the time, it was about five years ago, and I did not have the money to go out and buy one. So reproduction is what I had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yeah, because when you say you wanted to buy one, you mean an original one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had, when I first got into the British and Commonwealth's kit for Airsoft, I bought a stand from a family friend and he included a denizen from like a a relatively recent reproduction from what price glory but not the current iteration so that's another thing like there's a lot of different manufacturers that have different runs of smocks so a smock that was made in 2010 or 2015 or 2017 look very different and are identifiable because they're all the same in terms of that run. Mm-hmm. So you're able to like, I'm I currently I'm looking for a 2013-ish run of Soldier of Fortune's Denison because I think it's the truest to form. Not the current iteration. And the current iteration is the first actual Denison that I bought. Like a, a like I, I, I bought it new, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I I wore that for quite a while. And I recently took it apart. Well, so I, I think th- there's an interesting question here. So you uh, you think the Denison is the coolest piece of kit you've ever seen. You decide to do your Commonwealth impression kit and all this kind of stuff. And of course, you end up wearing it um, at the airsoft field. And we've talked a little bit in the past about your interest in living history, which is to say um, wearing historical kit and seeing what that's like to get a glimpse into the, uh, into the agency of the individuals at the time and stuff like that, which uh, we're not going to get into right now, but so you're, you're going to airsoft and you're playing with airsoft, wearing your Denison smock. How does that impact how you feel about it? Like, what do you learn about the smock when you're doing that, that you didn't know prior? That's, that's a good question because it's, it's something I've never talked about, but it's something I've obviously noticed. Um, when I bought my Soldier of Fortune smock, um, I was of the mindset that it can't be baggy. It has to be kind of close to how, like, if I was to buy a jacket new, I would get it to my measurements. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I did the same thought. I had the same thought process, but for a denizen. And that's not the role the denizen plays. And I didn't know that at the time. Denison's supposed to be a really baggy, like loose fitting garment. And I bought something that was, you know, pretty form fitting. So when it came time to don all my equipment, and so that includes my wool 
battle dress and my undershirt and all this stuff. It was getting to a point where I actually like I was having trouble moving because the limitations of the smock with the thick wool battle dress underneath was like impeding, like physically like straining the, the material to so thus making it harder to move in. Right. Okay. Um and like prior to that, like the one the like Zenison that I got from a family friend, like it was super baggy. And I took it to a tailor to try to get it altered mm-hmm. because it was too baggy. And I was like, this is just this is just ill ill fitting and I looked like a bum. Um not understanding what the smock was and what role it needed to play. And that's something that I, I see now and I see merit in the bagginess. Mm-hmm. And and I understand now that that's where the idea like the cool look comes from. It's like that baggy camouflage dirty with the with the coolest helmet of all. Like yeah. the, the Brit the British Mark Mark One and Two parachutist helmet. So you learn about so you're wearing the Denison smock, you learn a bunch of stuff. How how then do you start the process of sort of like to lack of better term, but to start obsessing about it, right. To start looking at it and just really wanting to learn everything there is to know about it. Um, for me, I found, um, well, I, one of the things that I I find currently so interesting about it is that there's so many things that are just unknown about it. And what I mean by unknown is, there there's no physical tangible documentation or primary source document that specify how the very first batch of smocks were made and it's really the role of the collector in the modern sense that's been piecing piecing together the pieces of this puzzle so like when i said earlier i i own a hand-painted smock a fir- like a first pattern hand-painted smock there's no writing that states that the uh, the first run of smocks were hand painted, and there's nothing denoting first and second patterns. That's clearly like a collectorism, for lack of a better word. It's like it's something born out of the the conscious ident- identity of the collector, and that's how they denote patterns and different variations between the wartime smocks. And it was actually because of that mystery and that I found that I got really obsessed on. I was like, well, there's something here to this. And, you know, we just don't know it. And I find that it's a, it's a mystery is what it is. And it's linked to two of my passions, camouflage and the British airborne. That, and that's, that's interesting because when you think about it, like think about all the things in our daily lives that we just do, you know, it's just part of what we do for expediency. We do X, Y, Z. We don't think about, how we're going to need to document what we're doing for yeah. generations, like 70 years in the future to figure out, yeah. Oh, that's why they did something. We just sort of do it because we need it right now. Um, yeah. and that potentially creates that mystery, which you're talking about, which is quite interesting. And honestly, I think the part when I really got obsessed with the dentist was probably at the start of the pandemic. I found like, I, you know, I lost, I was working at my local university as like, uh, like a, with the archaeology department and I, you know, I lost my job, which is, I mean, it wasn't much of a job to begin with. Uh, but so I qualified for like the, like the relief benefit or whatever. And so I, suddenly here I was stuck at home getting two grand 
not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So what what's the natural inclination of a 20-something to do? With an interest in airsoft and history. But to go on eBay and go look for Denison smocks. Mm-hmm. And so the first smock that I found was a South African like uh, training smock from, there's no date, but you can only speculate. It's probably from the 70s, maybe the late mid 60s. Uh, it's just a plain white smock. Um, and I was like, oh, this is so sick. This is, this is the first smock that I've ever owned. This is legit. And there's like, everything is so well known about the Denison in terms of like the actual smock, like those in the know understand what a new press stud is. And to see one of those in person, like a legit one was pretty crazy to me. Like to the, like to you and the rest of the guys, like here I am ogling about buttons and you're like, okay, this guy's clearly out to launch. Yeah. But, uh, so that's kind of where I got the bug. And like, I understand collecting things. Like I collect helmets, I collect how Denison's. So after that, like, I was like, I got to get a British one. So I got a DPM one for my birthday, like a cheap DPM one, CS95 pattern. So like 90s or 2000s. And after that, I found an Australian, uh, whatever their pattern is, the DCMU or whatever, I forget. Um, I got one of those smocks. And then like the idea was for me to start making one. I was like, that's, that's the goal right now. And the reason the thought process behind it was that there was, there is, and there's currently two people that manufacture like a hand painted reproduction of this mock everywhere else. Doesn't they all like, when I say everyone, everywhere else, I'm talking like big box stores. So like soldier of fortune, what price glory, they make uh, screen printed smocks, which is just, the means of applying the camouflage is done by screens as opposed to done by brush and hand. So there's a bit more labor intensive. There's really not much known about the smock. So it's realistically, it's guesswork. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to match it to an original. Um, So I I submitted my name to be on a, on the the list for one of these two. Actually, I put my name on both lists for uh, both manufacturers the frank brown does one steve kittle does another and i put my name on both and luckily i got on the steve kittle wait list of 20 or i got accepted for like one of steve kittle's run of first run of 25 smocks so and like last august or something i like i finally got it Mm -hmm. The, the august before last i finally got it and it's phenomenal like it's it's excellent it's a really well made and the only critique I really have of the garment is it's too well made. Like having an original now to compare it to, like the stitching is immaculate because he spent many months on it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I kind of got the bug of like, well, maybe I might try to reproduce my own one. So you know, I went down to the local craft store, um, in this case, Fabricville, and just bought a bunch of fabric that I thought would work. And I you know I've no sewing experience prior to this and I just sat down looked at my soldier of fortune second pattern smock because that's what I had available at the time and I just kind of just cobbled together like reverse engineered it I looked at the finished garments and I was like well 
how do I make one? And I just kind of just took a puzzle apart without actually doing anything like to destroy the reproduction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it bears, it bears resemblance to it. Uh, but I did a lot of things wrong, obviously, even right. like in terms of construction of denizens, like I should have dyed it and painted it first before assembling it. But I didn't, I did it all the one time when it was finished. Not sure what I was thinking on that, but that's it. And it wasn't until I got my Steve smock that I was able to really understand the nuance of the smock. So that's where, like, because the utmost care went into the reproduction. Like, the correct fabric is used. The correct stitch or the thread is used. Like, the coloring is perfect. The cuffs are perfect. The buttons are perfect. The zipper is original. These are all really, like, those who really have an appreciation for the smock that's what they kind of adhere to and mm-hmm. this is why this is the sieve smock is superior to the frank brown smock and i have no reason to think otherwise just based off the quality of the steve smock like there's so many details in it that kind of separate itself it's in a league of its own and they're collectible in their own right because right as of right now there's only 50 in existence yeah yeah and that's fair in fact, there's fewer of those than there are probably of original Denison smocks, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's well, it's such a few, it's such a low number. Mm-hmm. Like, there's probably a couple thousand, maybe a thousand of the most of originals, like hand-painted ones, that is. Yeah. Still kicking. Um, but for, like, obviously the price tag is for the serious, like, collector and reenactor. Like, it was... 350 pounds which is like 700 canadian Mm -hmm. like this is like only like the really dedicated want this mock and they get what they pay for like so he he did a specific manufacturer called wearings which is like (laughs) this is where like a a contextual understanding of the smock is kind of like needed like different manufacturers have different characteristics that are found on their smocks, like in terms of build construction. So with wearings, there's two very distinct characteristics for lack of a better word that kind of identify it from a visual glance as a wearing smock and not like my smock, which is a CWS. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like, there's another one, P Frankenstein and sons that kind of has the same, uh, identifiable traits, but they're different. It's unique to that manufacturer. So with a wearing smock, there's two waist fasteners that are on the bottom, or the lower part of the smock that kind of just sink it a little bit, cinch it in a little bit. And they have a triangled point as opposed to a rounded point. And on the front by the zipper on the storm flap, on both sides flanking the storm flap, there is a small little rectangle stitched in and that's to reinforce the pocket, the internal pocket. And those two characteristics denote it. Oh, well, sorry. There's three things. There's a four, there's a four piece uh, arm and uh, metal eyelets for vent holes under the, for the armpits. And those four things kind of like denote that this is a wearing smock and it's done expertly. So, I think what's interesting here is, I mean, you said, okay, there's three things. You could have told me there's seven things, or you could have told me there's two things. Like, there's yeah. no way that I'm going to know. And I'd say yeah, exactly. most of the people who are listening to the podcast also really won't know the difference. I mean, sure, maybe somebody does, and that's absolutely cool. But so you obviously have a very in-depth knowledge about 
the manufacturer, Den Denison's Mock and stuff like that. And yeah. I would say that that's not dissimilar to many of the in-depth knowledges that P other airsofters have about a variety of topics that are surrounding oh, airsoft, definitely. whether it's uh, because they watch a lot of forgotten weapons on a particular su subject and they know a lot about a particular firearm, like in their history and stuff, or because they spend, like Chaz, for example, spends a lot of time in a gearbox, just like Pat, and they both yeah. have a very in-depth knowledge about stuff that really the average person doesn't yeah. know a whole lot about so what's interesting though is like to me as just a rent let's say a regular individual it makes no difference and you could think yeah. okay well that knowledge isn't really useful but you then take that knowledge and apply it in an academic context right yeah that's true and i i, I mean to go back to the, like the original point that you said at the top of the podcast like turning into like a professional thing like you know, I like in my quest to reproduce the denison, it's lead me to like if I was to take it actually like extremely seriously, I have like a business already set up that would reproduce these smocks. But I would do like I can't do this like a wearings manufacturer because there's already one being reproduced. I would do something more generic. Mm -hmm. And when I say generic, uh, to you they all look generic in form and fit, but to the avid collector and those with a technical understanding of the smock, they understand the the phrasing of the most standard smock as being like a CWS for first pattern or like a John Gordon for second pattern. Mm -hmm. Like these are like things. So like I set out to reproduce one of these smocks and some of the things that I ran into was like, how do I mix the dye? How do I get the right color of dye? And arguably once I had the dye situation relatively figured out and made it bear resemblance to the correct colors used on the originals, I was like, I, I kind of hit a roadblock and this is going to tie into that last latest question. It's, um, I asked the fundamental question, what makes a denison a denison? Mm -hmm. Is it the construction or is it the camouflage? And it's that very basic question that led me to think like, and look and really do a bit of a case study on hand-painted smocks. Out of that, I, I have kind of turned that, what could be a business into like an academic project that I'm working on currently about the smock. Um, specifically, it's like, there's a, there's a distinct pattern on hand painted smocks that, um, that I have never noticed, but now that I have noticed, like it's impossible to kind of miss. Mm -hmm. And the implications of this finding for me and my research is like, for the longest time, I mean, to this day from 1940, well, since after the war in 45 to today, the un, the popular understanding of the smock is that there's no uniformity to these rent, like these first pattern smocks. And uh, my argument is that there is. And it's based on very clear visual patterns on the back of the smock. And the reason why the back of the smock is used is because there's no uh, elements that impede the pattern. So what you're looking at is just the, the width of a bolt of fabric, essentially, but cut out to a denizen, like 
back panel piece, which is all one piece of fabric. Mm-hmm. So you, you can see it on the front, but it's being impeded by you know the zipper, the storm flap, the forefront pockets, and the six reinforcing press studs on the lower half of the smock. Um, so it's like you can, I mean, if it wasn't for Airsoft and giving me like the ability to reenact and live out history, you know, I wouldn't have found a denizen. I wouldn't, I, I don't, I don't think I would have found a denizen as soon as I did. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would move into different avenues of like setting out to reproduce it. Now that I understand how to reproduce and construct the smock and my sewing skills have vastly improved since the start of the pandemic to where they are now yeah like it's it's like it's i it's such a for me it's like such a niche area that's like you know i could get by with starting a business and i would have a lot of customers because the demand is so small Mm -hmm. like there's only two dudes making these smocks one dude like steve he just runs of 25 and you know I waited, I waited about, I ordered it in December of 20, 2019 and I got it August of 2020. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think my number 16 of 25, like I think he, he's numbered, I think my 16. So like, that's a lot, that's a lot of time to, you know, from order to completion. Yeah, I mean it's um, and, a piece of art though, really. When I, when you think oh, about it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 what's the, what's the cool what's a cool kid term for it? It's bespoke. Is that is that the word <laughs> you guys use? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a bespoke bespoke smock. Yeah. And like I remember 2019 of October of 2019, I put my name on for Frank Brown's uh list and you know, he hasn't reached out and uh said like, you know, the queue, the queue is now saying that you're next and, you know, put your deposit down or whatever. So like the market for these smocks is high because there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of people that want to re- reenact World War II bridge airborne. And most of those most of those people understand what the denizen is and they usually want the, the cool, unique thing that denotes them from being different from everyone else. So like given the option, would they rather spend like uh, 150 bucks on like a reproduction from a big box store or would they rather spend a little bit more money and get something bespoke, you know, that's unique says that they're above that they take this more seriously than other people, even though that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of um, like guys showing up with wearing like cry pants instead of like TMZ pants and yeah, being exactly. like, Oh, they're cry. So they're better. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, maybe uh, probably, but at the same time, like it doesn't really make a difference. We're still just yeah, playing airsoft, but it makes a difference exactly. to you, right? The individual for sure. Well, yeah. Like, um, like this is like the hand painted smock is just not being represented. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no, and that's due to the limitations of manufacture. Like if one of these big box stores did a hand painted version, it would sell numerous amounts of smocks. Like I'm talking crazy amounts. They, they would first far outreach or surpass the screen printed smocks. And that's just because of the nature of the beast. 
it's not being reproduced and in like a quick enough fashion. So like the supply is being completely diminished by the demand. Demand is just out the window. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that I recognized recently. And it gave me the inclination to maybe if I, if I didn't want to be a teacher, then maybe the, this would be a career for me, like turning my passion of denizens and history and creating things and using my hands into like a tangible career that I could make a living off of. For sure. And it all, it all derives from me playing airsoft. Yeah. And I mean, this ties in neatly to, you know, the next question I was going to ask. I'm sure there's lots of people who are listening to this podcast and maybe you haven't made it this far, but, and that's fine. But like for people (laughs) who have made it this far, you may think, okay, well, cool. I I get that John really enjoys the Denison. He's like obsessed with it or whatever, but like, (laughs) why should I care? Right. Why should I care about John's process? And I think there's, there's two things here that are important is that one, the sort of um, obsession and really, um, you know, for lack of a better term, like I'd say obsession, but what I really mean is like passion really for a particular kind of thing is something that you can absolutely use to launch yourself into a professional direction of some sort, academic or otherwise. Like you were talking about writing papers, but you could also easily talk about starting a business when yeah. And you look at a lot of airsofters who are, you know, quote unquote, making it in the in the public sphere, like guys like Novrich and stuff like that. And they're doing that by manufacturing and produce, you know, supplying a demand for airsofters. So that's certainly one yeah. piece of it, right? But I think there's a more um, fundamental reason that people probably ought to care about, um, not necessarily, if not the denizen, but about your process. And that is that, there is a lot of, and based on a conversation we had, you know, just preparing for this podcast, there's a lot of information that exists already about the Denison out there, and not all of it is necessarily accurate, right? There's yeah, some challenges the, that you're bringing to the table. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, that's the reason why, off the top of the podcast, I stated my, you know, my understanding and how long my credentials, for lack of a better word, to be talking about the subject. It's because, like, if you punch in Denison Smock on Denison Smock form on Google or whatever, there are so many, like, people that just don't understand or they just hear through the grapevine that this, it was done in this way, um, when in actuality they have no basis for that and they have no understanding of the smock. They just, they're just saying what they already heard and they don't bother if it's true or not. Like there's like, it's like, for example, like the whole reason why I'm writing this paper is because there's like the, the understanding of the smock is, has ground to a halt and we just have plateaued. There's no further expansion of the the topic because everyone thinks it was done in this way and rightfully so there's no documentation and that's the biggest that's like the biggest claim to why we can't progress as like historians or collectors or whatever because there's no evidence but we have evidence there's one one document and a multitude of smocks so it's what what needs to happen and what i'm doing is like doing a case study on based off this one document that provides the specs specifications for the smock and 
the collector's like repertoire of like terminology and understanding of the smock to launch myself into like a direction that hopefully will set the record straight and kind of this is something that's so weird to me it's like i'm going to write the first chapter of the denison which is so weird Mm -hmm. for sure and I think that's that's you know what I wanted you to talk a little bit about because it's you're in a situation where through starting from your airsoft roots through your you know your discovery and your searching and whether it's about a denison smock or whether it's about gun teching or whether it's about anything really you have an opportunity to uncover areas yeah. that people sort of take for granted or don't necessarily understand very well and yeah. not be satisfied with what you find and push that even further to start yep. making yourself an expert at the yep. particular thing you're talking about. And when you started this, you definitely weren't an expert on the Denison Smock. I mean, we've oh, talked God, no. well, we've talked about in the past how you started playing airsoft as a, you know, your World War II kit and you thought that that was the bee's knees, and in mm-hmm. retrospect you're like, I didn't know anything, but I know a lot more now, right? Yeah. Like that's the thing like it's like even if it's something historical, like it's maybe like I don't know, American camouflage in the Vietnam War. Like, there might be countless books, and they all could be kind of like an echo chamber saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And you could be going on forums, and they could be also saying all the same things. But you could have a different outlook on something that counters the argument and kind of says, maybe we're wrong. And that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Like, there's a single book written about the Denison, and it's recently published in 2016. And there is a lot of myth, like factual inaccuracies published in this book that, I mean, this book was made in partnership with the Imperial War Museum in Britain, specifically the Airborne Assault Museum, which is all about the airborne mm-hmm. with a heavy focus on the Second World War paras. Factually, the, the information about the Denison especially the early early ones is borderline wrong because he brings up factual mistruths and says he can he can neither confirm or deny that because there's no tangible evidence supporting one one argument or the other but just you know a preliminary glance of understanding like logistics for militaries like you know stripping it back to its essentials like is this a practical thing to do? Yeah. Make 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 a smog with a water soluble dye that fades in sunlight and exposure to the elements and use that for like an arid terrain. Is that really practical in 1942? Is that how forward thinking the British military was? Probably not. Yeah, that's right. So this is very clearly a myth that's now been perpetuated because it's inside a published book that's with I'm looking at the cover right now. It has a hand painted smock and the the word Denison in big bold letters on the front. You can't really like argue that this book isn't about a Denison. Like this is the the sole focus of the book. Yeah. Uh, though I don't want to like rag on it too much. It, it is an excellent resource for picture documents and stuff. Like he uses, he has an excellent repertoire of like smocks use. It's just his phrasing. Some of his like. Some of his like claims are just a little, a little out to lunch in my eyes, and yeah, it's like it's through like my passion of the smock that I wouldn't have get garnered from playing airsoft without airsoft. That like 
I'm able to challenge like a published work. So like, that's, that's the thing that I think Phil you're trying to get at is definitely. And it's interesting because as a historian, you will not necessarily always know where the next source of information about your particular field of study is going to come from. And I, I never, I don't think I've ever told you this, but I, I, I reached out. So uh, I've talked about this in the Discord before, but my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, well, both all my grandparents fought in World War II, but my my maternal grandfather, my mom's dad, he uh, was trained in the United States in 1945 um, in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, yeah. with a whole crew of fighting French, so the France Libre, the Francais Libre, I should say, uh, mm-hmm. in Florida with the Navy to be a part of the tor- torpedo bombers and stuff like that. Because, okay. in, you know, in our in our sort of retrospect, we know that the war ended in 1945, but in 1945, yep. they didn't know it was going to end, so yeah, they exactly. kept training and stuff. Um, and so he, <laughs> yeah. was, he was down in Jacksonville, Florida. And I wanted to see if I could find some pictures of him uh, on his deployment. And I had some uh, artifacts that were left behind of, from his time there, but I didn't have any pictures of him. And so what I actually did is I reached out to the command historian at uh, Naval Air Station Jacksonville, uh, who's like a civilian who's attached to to like the, you know, whatever the unit is down there. Uh, and I basically mm-hmm. told him, I'm like, hey, so uh, my grandfather was trained here in, you know, 1945. I sent him a copy of my grandfather's training certificate uh, that certified that he had been trained as a, as a um, you know, French torpedo bomber, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, yeah. when I provided that information to him, the guy said, oh, I did not think that the fighting French had ever been trained at this auxiliary station that is cited on the document that you that you provided. So it's called mm-hmm. Cecil Field, where it was an auxiliary yep. base of, of Jacksonville, uh, and Naval Air Station Jacksonville. And he came back to me and he's like, I knew that they had trained a torpedo, torpedo bomber uh, aviators in Jacksonville, but it was my understanding that they were not trained at Cecil Field. And I provided mm-hmm. him a force source document that showed that that had actually been done, right? And this guy, it turns out, because he was very kind and he sent me a copy, he wrote a book on the training that had over history that's been done in in Jacksonville in Florida. Oh, wow. So now he has a primary source documentation that proves that a piece of knowledge that he had about uh, Jacksonville was actually incorrect. Right now, <laughs> unfortunately yeah. for me, he didn't have any pictures of my grandfather. But I mean, that's yeah. you know, it is what it is. But that was a really interesting, uh, a really interesting moment, both for both for me and for him as well. Right, yeah. and so it's I, I'd, I'd say it would be not dissimilar to you reaching out to this person who wrote the Denison book and saying like, hey, just so you know, like here's some information that I have based on my on my historical you know studies. And like, right? like it's funny, like the <laughs> the thing about like this book is because it provides a the only primary source document of the denison which is the specification sheet and he doesn't he doesn't do anything with it like he has it in his book schedule a and schedule b which outline the components of the smock like like basically everything you want to know about the construction of the smock is detailed here it's because this is like outside of the pattern pieces like this is the, the next key bit of information for the smock. Mm-hmm. And in the top right, it say it states supersede specification U dash or forward slash one nine eight eight, which is just the 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 technical term for the document. Um, and this is 
uh, specification U forward slash 1998B. So this is the second iteration. So that was A, which is now superseded by B. We don't know. I don't know where schedule or the superseded document it is. That could also shed tremendous amount of light, not only in the date, like the order of operations, like when did the denizens first start production? Because right now, my understanding is that after August 1942, like the denizen starts being made now. It could have been made back in March, but I have no way of knowing because there's so few documentations. The Imperial War Museum is so swamped with like questions and stuff. I'm not going to hear back from them for another month at least if mm -hmm. I hear back from them at all. So like really like the lack of him utilizing a primary source and then like a technical, like analytical historic, historically correct way is just like a deficit to his book and his research on the smock, which, you know, like I said, we've, we haven't progressed as like a community of like collectors or historians, whatever you want to define us as, even though there's a published book. Yeah, and I think you you mentioned it earlier, but I think that that's an important facet that we even live in our in our regular airsoft without getting into the specifics of a particular like uh, piece of you know specific garment from forty two. But like, yeah. we don't want to live in an echo chamber where everybody's saying the same thing. If it turns out yeah. that some of that could actually be a falsehood, right? Like people people this happens a lot. We see it a lot on you know like the airsoft subreddit, for example, where people oh, keep yeah. saying the same thing over and over and over, and it's just it's just not true. And so yeah. you have to be willing to uh, have your opinion challenged about something, and vice versa. If you have reason to challenge the common knowledge and you should definitely do that that being said john i think there's one last question i want to ask you which maybe we should ask like right at the beginning but who or what was denison oh man oh man this is such a classic question who was denison i have no idea denison apparently is in my eyes the way i view him He's this fictitious character that looms over every Denison smock. <laughs> There's apparently this one dude named Major Denison who worked with a artist. Um, oh, what's his name? I'm going to have to look, see if I can't find it. Like Maxwell Liddell or something like that. Like that. And who was like the chief artist for like the War Department's camouflage program. And apparently... He created the Denison, which really doesn't really make that much sense when you think about it, because there's no documentation of this dude. There is no documentation linking him to a Denison. And more importantly, like the specification U number 998B is published by someone completely different. Uh, Sergeant Howard Penton, the Chief Inspector of Clothing. So this is a little bit like General Tao coming up with a spicy sweet chicken recipe, right? That's yeah, probably exactly. not exactly what happened. Yeah, there's no there's no concrete evidence that links Major Denison to the Denison smock. And so we call it Denison because it's it's printed on the garment, like on the tag. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's uh, smocks Denison Airborne Troops in parentheses. Okay. Um, that's that's what's on the tag. Um, but like, there's no like credit 
like I don't understand where this came from. Like if he was a prolific figure, like a major or something with the airborne, at least the dude who created the garment that we're even talking about 80 years later and still in service today, like there would be something about him. Yeah. There would be like a profile. There would be like factual military records that link him distinctly to the smock, but there isn't. So major Dennison, I don't, even if you do exist, I don't believe that you're linked to it. I'm saying it. Okay. Fair enough. Well, listen, John, uh, I think this is a good place to end off. I think, um, like we said at the top of the podcast, we will be creating sort of a companion video that goes along with it that talks a lot more about like the history and visually represents some of the things that you're talking about uh, in terms yeah. of the specifics of the Denison, um, like the tags and all this kind of stuff. So I'm really looking forward to getting that done with you. Yeah, I think I think what we're I think what I'm I'm, I'm planning for it is kind of like using that as like a springboard for my research paper. So in that in that discussion that video. I'm going to be talking a lot more technically about what I'm researching specifically and with like actual demonstrations with my smock and, you know, we'll impose other pictures and stuff that I'm going to be referencing. For sure. And by that time, you'll have figured out who Major Denison was, right? <laughs> yeah, hopefully. So, yeah, just to give you guys a little preview of what's to come. Yeah, absolutely. Get well, John, excited. Thanks so much for having the conversation with us today. Uh, I know no, that this sweat. is more, let's say, Airsoft adjacent than Airsoft specific content, but I think, Definitely. and I really hope that a lot of you who are listening are inspired to use some of your passions that you've discovered from Airsoft to springboard some of your own projects, whether that's to get into... Yeah like being becoming a seamster learning how to sew whether that's uh looking into research projects diving into historical aspects of airsoft that you may not have considered before uh or at least at the very least documenting or starting to capture some of the things that you already know so that in the future you will have a basis to continue some of one of some of your projects right and dude i just want to say i just want to say no matter how stupid you think the idea is do it anyways because if you see something that no one else has seen there's probably a good reason for it. And yep. you should probably follow that because one differing opinion has the potential, if properly executed, to completely change the fundamental understanding of what, what it is you're interested in. No matter that be airsoft related, that could just be in your personal life. You could be researching anything. Mm -hmm. And if you find that there's some inaccuracy at some point, there's some discrepancy, challenge it. Make sure you do your research first. Obviously, do your research first. Understand how to write a paper and if that's the means you want to go to. And make sure you're properly qualified to talk about what it is you're talking about. And I think with that, you can you can challenge any of the most prestigious like understandings of things. Like you could you could challenge anything you ever wanted to. It could be wrong, and that's one thing you have to accept. Like I know with me, there's no concrete evidence. This is pure speculation and theory. I could be wrong and I'm okay with being wrong, but I want to publish what I'm finding because I think it's, it's important because no one else is talking about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And like you said, I think the most important part is that you, that you take away, I think is your, is the dad advice that you just gave, which is even if you don't think it's important, do it anyway. Uh, I think, yeah. you know, guys, there's a overall without you know getting too much into it there's a distinct lack of passion in today's cultures where people yeah. don't explore certain things that they really care about because you know you're influenced in some way or another that and think oh well it's not that important if it's important to you 
it's important and you should spend the amount of time that just like you would anything else. Don't let anybody else tell you what should be important to you. If you think it's important, then get after it. That's the most important thing you can do. Yep. So guys, thank you so much for listening. If you want to keep the conversation going, please join us on the discord and that's all we got for you. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.